Does medical management of severe but asymptomatic carotid stenosis compare favorably with the surgical approach? At least one recent study reported in Journal Watch hints that it does. A definitive answer might be available during the next year from a large randomized trial called CREST-2. To discuss current thinking about this controversial topic, Journal Watch Editor-in-Chief Alan Brett has invited a neurologist and a member of the executive committee of CREST-2, Sima Chattervedi, to this clinical conversation. Dr. Chattervedi serves as the Greenbaum Professor of Stroke Neurology and directs the Stroke Program at the University of Maryland. He is also an associate editor for NEJM Journal Watch Neurology. Welcome. And Dr. Brett, the floor is yours. Thank you, Joe. Uh, first, we'll talk about the background issues very briefly. And then later in this discussion, we'll um, talk about the CREST-2 uh, trial. So first about the background, let me just remind listeners that when we say asymptomatic carotid stenosis, we're talking about a person with high-grade stenosis who has no history of a ipsilateral TIA or stroke. Now, this was first studied in randomized fashion. And by first studied, I mean a comparison between medical management and revascularization uh, with patients enrolled in the late 1980s and 1990s in two big trials, one in Europe and one in North America. And what they found uh, was roughly the following. The five-year risks of either a, a stroke or a perioperative uh, bad outcome, a perioperative stroke or death, was about 5 or 6% in the revascularization groups, the carotid endarterectomy groups, and about 11 to 12% in controls who were medically managed. So there was about a five percentage point advantage for revascularization, but we should remember that the surgical group sort of takes an upfront hit with a several percentage point of perioperative stroke or death. So it took about two years uh, for the benefit of revascularization to occur cumulatively compared to medical management. Since then, there have been a number of observational studies that suggest in more uh, recent times, the yearly rate of ipsilateral stroke may be down to something like 1% per year in medically managed patients. And that's what this recent JAMA study showed that we summarized in Journal Watch a few weeks ago. So I'm gonna turn it over and ask CMOD at this point, what's changed in the two decades since those large trials were published that sort of changed the landscape here, both on the medical side and the revascularization side? Sure, and um, thank you for the invitation to join you today. First of all, on the medical side, we should realize that uh, a lot of the uh, first-generation trials were started in the late 1980s uh, or 1990s, and that was largely in the uh, pre-statin era, and especially the high-potency statins, which are so often used these days, uh, were not really available during the time of uh, ACAS, which was the major North American study that you referred to. And so I think because of the uh, widespread use of uh, statins and also better blood pressure control, uh, as well as uh, uh, other factors, uh, the stroke rate definitely has come down. And as you mentioned, the, uh, some observational studies have suggested uh, that the uh, annual stroke rate is now 1% or even less. Some studies have shown 0.5% per year, which is really remarkably low. And on the surgical side, 
the results from endarterectomy do also seem to be improving uh, from recent randomized trials. The uh, perioperative stroke and death rate has been as low as uh, 1 to 1.5%, uh, possibly 2% in other studies. And I think uh, patient selection is very important because uh, if you operate on elderly patients, you're going to have a higher complication rate. And so I think that's something that we need to be cautious about. And also keep in mind that uh, very few people above age 80 were enrolled in those trials. And so I'm always cautious about asymptomatic people over age 80. Uh, but I think uh, uh, both medical and surgical results seem to be improving. And so I think that uh, has set the stage nicely for uh, some of the randomized trials. You want to mention anything here about stenting? Uh, I think both randomized trials were exclusively endarterectomy. Um, maybe just a quick word about uh, stenting. Sure. Yeah, so carotid stenting uh, has uh, become uh, a player on the scene in the last uh, 20 years or so. And their uh, CREST-1 actually uh, compared endarterectomy versus stenting in a combination of symptomatic and asymptomatic patients. And what was found is that uh, over the long run, the results are fairly comparable between the two procedures. Uh, but in the immediate post-operative period, uh, endarterectomy has a lower uh, stroke rate compared to stenting. And so it was around, the stroke rate was around 4.5% with stenting compared to about 2.3% with endarterectomy. And so, uh, so in the reality in the United States, the vast majority of procedures are still endarterectomy and stenting is only done on maybe 10% uh, of patients or so. Thank you. Patients with asymptomatic uh, stenosis have shown up in my practice over the years in several different ways. Um, and it's kind of interesting to think about that. A number of them were cardiologists who just randomly did uh, carotid ultrasounds while they were seeing patients with coronary disease. You have the screening vans that go out called Lifeline Screening and maybe some other companies that, that for a couple of hundred bucks will do some screenings on patients. You have docs who still listen for breweries routinely and then they'll order an ultrasound if they hear one. And then what I would consider inappropriate ordering, say patients with dizziness or syncope and then routinely getting a carotid ultrasound in those patients. So we end up with these cases and we read the reports and I'm asking you now, is there anything about the anatomy itself that can, in your experience or from the literature, predict who may actually be at higher risk or, or, or a higher chance of benefit, I should say, from revascularization based on plaque characteristics or Doppler um, embolic signals and some of those um, techniques? If we uh, first take a step back and look at are there any uh, demographic factors which uh, suggest any differences, uh, the studies have suggested that men tend to benefit more than women. And so I think that's an interesting observation. Uh, and uh, if you look at the two largest studies, uh, they found uh, when the analyses were combined that there was no benefit for women. And, uh, and so that uh, one of the observations is that it could relate to the plaque characteristics. And some studies have shown that women have less uh, macrophage infiltration and more smooth muscle and so that their uh, plaques may be more uh, stable uh, compared to men. And uh, so that's one uh, demographic factor that I consider. In terms of the other plaque characteristics, yeah, there is uh, evidence that uh, transcranial Doppler can be useful. And that's a technique where a probe is put uh, over the uh, skull uh, in the area of the middle cerebral artery. And if you see tiny embolic signals going to the 
uh, ipsilateral middle cerebral artery, those patients appear to be at higher risk for stroke. And so that is a technique that I use in my practice that uh, if I'm considering revascularization, I will get a, a transcranial Doppler to look for microemboli. And, uh, and I'll uh, at least discuss with the patient that if they have uh, uh, microemboli on TCD, that they may have benefit. And then there's also a lot of interest these days in uh, high resolution MRI plaque imaging, uh, because the MRI can show very well uh, the lipid core, uh, the thickness of the fibrous cap. And there's some suggestion that individuals who have a large lipid core with a thin cap may be at high risk for stroke, but that's still predominantly a research tool. It hasn't really percolated into regular practice. Okay, well, let's transition now into CREST-2. You've been uh, involved in that study at two different institutions, and go ahead and tell us a little bit about that study, uh, how it's being done, who the patients are, and uh, whatever you'd like to uh, share with us. Yeah, so CREST-2 is a large uh, NIH-sponsored study, and it's really uh, two parallel trials, uh, because one uh, arm of the uh, study is comparing endarterectomy versus intensive medical therapy, and then the other arm is looking at carotid stenting versus intensive medical therapy. And so at each particular center, uh, they can evaluate their expertise and they can decide to participate in only the endarterectomy part, only the stenting part, or both. And uh, so the, the study has uh, gone on for uh, uh, about uh, more than seven years now, and it uh, has over close to 2,100 patients, uh, but the overall goal is to get 2,500. And so it's greater than 80% completed, which is the good news. Uh, but the uh, not so good news is that the enrollment became a little bit sluggish during the pandemic. And so we could really use uh, a lot of referrals from uh, primary care physicians who are listening. And uh, so uh, the study is looking at patients who have 70 to 99% asymptomatic stenosis, and then they're randomized to either intensive medical therapy or intensive medical therapy plus revascularization. And one uh, crucial part about the intensive medical therapy is that it's using all the modern targets. And so patients are uh, titrated to a systolic blood pressure of less than 130, LDL less than 170, uh, less than 70 rather. And, uh, and also they have uh, guidance on lifestyle modification through a uh, counseling company. And uh, so it uh, really, uh, and also patients have the opportunity to uh, receive PCSK9 inhibitors as part of the study, which uh, uh, is uh, I think a significant benefit. And, uh, and the study has shown that with intensive medical therapy, about 70% of patients are achieving uh, both the systolic blood pressure and the LDL target, which I think is uh, great compared to uh, general practice. I'm just curious, Simant, um, if you can tell us, uh, you just made an appeal for more recruits <laughs> to, the, to the study to complete it. How are patients being identified to enter the study now? Are the, are the centers advertising come in and will do a carotid ultrasound on you? Or is it exclusively people who for whatever reason are getting imaged on the outside, asymptomatic stenosis is found, and then you try to grab those uh, patients for the trial? Yeah, there's no specific uh, advertising as part of the trial. And so most of the patients are identified through sort of routine clinical means. And as you alluded to, some patients are screened for if they have coronary disease, some patients are screened if they have peripheral vascular disease, and others uh, after identification of a brewery. Uh, and then sometimes patients will have uh, one symptomatic carotid, but they'll have asymptomatic disease on the other side. And so if they come in with a left hemisphere stroke, they may have asymptomatic disease on the right side, 
and that way they can be brought to clinical attention. And so it's really through a variety of those uh, means that patients are being identified. Uh, but the interesting thing for your listeners is that uh, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force at the current time does not recommend uh, general screening for carotid stenosis. Originally, I read on clinicaltrials.gov that the study was expected to be completed at the end of this year. Is that going to be delayed a bit because of the slowdown with COVID? I believe so. Uh, we're, we're hoping that the enrollment will be completed in the next maybe 12 to 15 months, uh, but I think it will be slowed a little bit because of the pandemic. Uh, we're hoping that with the sort of stabilization of the pandemic that the enrollment can increase, uh, but we'll see in the coming months. So we may have a couple of years to wait for the results. And in the meantime, we're still going to be seeing patients who either we screen or get dropped in our lap as generalists. So let me ask you a final two-part question wrapping this up. And I realize one size doesn't fit all, and this is a very hard question to answer in just a couple minutes. But uh, pending the results, if you were a primary care physician, A, are there patients whom you would uh, screen, asymptomatic patients, uh, screen for carotid stenosis? And B, if you do screen and find it or a patient gets sent to you, to us, how would you manage it now pending the results of the CREST-2 trial? Yeah, I don't think there are any definite indications for screening as of yet. If you uh, happen to listen for brewies and if you identify a brewie, I think it's commonplace to follow that up with a carotid ultrasound. And, uh, and especially if the patient doesn't have any existing uh, known atherosclerotic disease, I think the, uh, doing the ultrasound can at least identify a patient who potentially has vascular disease, which requires intensive medical therapy. But at, uh, in the broad sense, there's no general indication for screening. If you happen to identify a patient who does have greater than 70% asymptomatic stenosis, I would consider uh, some of the factors I mentioned before. I would uh, at least discuss with male patients the potential for revascularization. I'm very conservative with women. Uh, I don't re ordinarily recommend revascularization for women. I would also be cautious in patients above age 80 or above age 75, where they may have uh, higher complications rates from surgery. And if you have a uh, access to a good uh, neurology program and good transcranial Doppler lab, I would consider getting a, a transcranial Doppler with microemboli detection. And then as I also mentioned, I would look for your uh, closest Crest2 center and try to refer them. Uh, that would be great, uh, very beneficial to the study. Sounds good. It's, yeah, it's a difficult one. And, and I, as I said, one size doesn't fit all. And, uh, and, and we really have to use some judgment, patient preferences, and all the factors that you uh, talked about. So it'll be interesting to see how CREST2 turns out and uh, whether there's gonna be a decisive advantage for one group or the other, or it's gonna be one of these situations where we have a, the definitive randomized trial ends up with a borderline result and that the controversy will continue. So <laughs> that's, uh, uh, I guess we should end on that note. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Thanks, Simon. Yeah, no, my pleasure to join you. and. Uh... Hope this conversation is useful for our practicing doctors. I think it is, thanks. That was our 295th edition. Clinical Conversations comes to you from the writers and editors of NEJM Journal Watch. Our executive producer is Kristen Kelly, and I'm Joe Elia. Thank you for listening.